0: I am a little bit of a pessimist, and you are. You know, but we know that. But that's my job. You're supposed to bring the positivity here. Munster are not one of the best teams in the world at the moment.
1: The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neave Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now.
0: Now we're going to go through the Sunday papers. So I'll start with the headlines, as you might imagine, events at the Aviva Stadium taking precedence on all the front pages. Sunday, independent, first of all, and it's a brilliant shot of Obafemi and uh, Jason Malumbi jumping on him after that brilliant Obafemi strike to make it 3-0. Kenny's kids come of age and did feel a bit like that, it must be said, yesterday at the Aviva Stadium. Obafemi and Parrott shine in win that eases pressure on boss. Daniel McDonald there on the front page of the Sunday independent. Similar picture, on the front page of the Sunday Times three and easy is the headline it's a picture of Obafemi celebrating his goal and then alongside that Liverpool tried to get Nunes fee reduced this is Darwin Nunes who Liverpool are on the cusp of signing Benfica want 70 million sterling plus add-ons Liverpool want to get that price down somewhat but the uh, general sense from Paul Joyce and Duncan Castle's writing this piece is that the deal will be done one way or another, just a case of for how much. Sun Sport, they think it's all Oba. And it's a shot of Obafemi about to pull the trigger and make it 3-nil. Michael Obafemi starred on his full Ireland debut to help the boys in Green end their winless run in the Nations League, writes Neil Reardon Above that a drive to survive and it's a picture of a relieved Pora Gohora and Jordan Flynn from Mayo who came back really with only about 5-10 minutes to go against Kildare. They were behind for most of that game at Crow Park uh, yesterday. We have Sunday Mirror Sport then. Panic Oba. So Obafemi celebrating the main picture. Michael and co lift the gloom. And then we have the Sunday World Oba Oba Femi again to the fore here. Michael hits a screamer as Ireland have Aviva rocking. Ireland 3 Scotland 0 and the Mail on Sunday similar theme same picture actually Malumbi jumping up and Michael Obafemi that's more like it is the headline Kenny and Ireland get back on track with pumping win over hapless Scots and they were poor it must be said very able to say we have Bernard Jackman here in studio Bernard you're very welcome thank you and Tommy Conlon is there not there Not there. Okay, we'll get Tommy Conlon with this uh, very shortly. So just a few technical difficulties. Republic of Ireland coverage everywhere. That's on all the back pages. Uh, Generally the same theme. Uh, Relieved manager and a good Irish performance. And boosted, I think, by the fact that a lot of the young guns shined, which is always, in any sport, real cause for enthusiasm and celebration going forward. Yeah, you'd have to hope this is a turning point for him he's obviously had a tough
2: time um, it's taken a long time to to get that big win particularly at home so um, there seemed to be a great buzz in the stadium P- everyone enjoyed it and obviously now it's a case of, of building on that but um, yeah it's been a long wait for him I, f- I felt sorry for him We do
0: with Stephen Kenny seem to lurch from crisis to everything's okay and even two games into this four game stretch it was back to crisis again so this just puts a bit of coolant on the conversation which was beginning to bubble up again I would say yeah,
2: Kenny. look at the problem is he has is that they probably there's a lot of doubters particularly in the punditry um, and they haven't had enough good results or good performances despite some some positives to, to quell that so I, th- I think they probably need to make sure that they double down on this and finish finish properly but uh, it could be the turning point for him and, and look he, he deserves I hate to see a, a manager
0: under as much pressure as, as he've be- he's he been So Eamon Sweeney for instance Page 2 of the Sunday independent he talks about uh, kenny remains the right man as the headline about just this uh, lurching from one extreme to the other so he said there was the eight match unbeaten run which earned him a contract extension but two poor displays against armenia and ukraine last week saw opportunist attempts to imply his job should be on the line again some of them came from pundits richard dunn and gary breen being prime examples who've never hidden their disdain for everything kenny stands for i think that's unfair I don't think Dunn and Breen have disdain for everything Kenny stands for. Breen, however, last night saluted the best Ireland performance under Stephen Kenny, adding that the manager got it right by going with Molumbi and Jason Knight in the midfield as they were both outstanding. I think if you have disdain for everything a manager stands for, you wouldn't be so quick to praise it when things are good. Like, Kenny has to be uh, criticised and held to the same standards as previous managers. It can't be a case of, oh, he's a League of Ireland manager, therefore we expect less from him. I mean, that's patronising in its own way.
2: Yeah, and he would judge himself. I mean, he he would have aspirations to have as good of an international record or if not better than anybody it doesn't matter where he's come from and he he has his own philosophy he's trying to embed it you know I'm not a soccer expert but um, I would understand or, or believe that maybe this group aren't as talented as some of the teams in the past so they're going to have to be a little bit more patient and find a way of playing that's probably unique to them and that's going to take time so um, yeah I, I think Don, You know, um, they've given him praise there they could have easily went down the route of Scotland were Terrible and you know that would have maybe led you to believe that there was an, an issue there but I think all, well most pundits uh, I would hope would um, call as they see it and, and not have a vendetta against any manager
0: Yeah that's my sense of their punditry to be honest I mean it's his third competitive win from 18. I don't think it's outrageous to raise a question mark or two. We'll come back to the football in a moment when Tommy Conlon joins us. Might come to your piece before that. Lost to Bulls will rock Leinster to their core. This is page 17 of Sunday Independent. I thought this was uh, full of really interesting stuff, I have to say. Now, you start off with the British Empire. Yeah, don't worry about that. That's only fluff. That's only fluff. Let's, get, <laughs> let's get down to the real stuff. <laughs> so, uh, Leinster akin to the British, British Empire. But you do make the point, Leinster... Have won the last four tournaments. They've topped the league table year after year, and they've been consistently the genuine contenders in Europe. And then a Saracens bubble up or a La Rochelle bubble up, and so there's a bit of soul searching going on. What jumps out to me more than anything is the extent to which Bernard Jackman facilitated the Bulls all week. Uh, <laughs> all week, Bernard Jackman <laughs> has been helping out the Bulls. Wait, well, this, this, so uh, well. In fairness, they had a terrible build up in that. The competition has essentially guaranteed they'd have business class travel as part of the uh, arrangements. And so that meant that the Bulls had to travel on four different routes. And then some of their training gear went AOL, but they train at St. Michael's in Terranure, You're right. And that's a great insight to get because I know you know uh, Jake White, who called you and said the boys wanted a meal in brackets staking lots of it to break up the week as they were staying in Bowles Bridge I booked them into Searsons on Tuesday night look at the connections you have no
2: it's not it's, ah life more, at the top there's, there's more to it than that so basically he goes he said somewhere like Spur Spur is basically their equivalent of TJ Fridays so I rang TJ Fridays in in Tampa Bar uh 40 people in France that were brilliant they wanted to put on extra chefs etc because it's a big group of lads and they said they're going to each out of house and home and then it turned out they didn't have access to a bus so they're going to have to get whatever uh, 8 different taxis so they said can you get us something local so we're down to Searson's um, they were, uh, they were more than happy to take them. But it was funny because I went back to the hotel. They were staying in Harbour Park, and I picked up the manager Elias. Um, Jake White has is actually he's got shingles. He, he wasn't doing much this week. Um, and Elias I said, "Do you want to come and check both these places out?" So, but he comes out in his bare feet, and I was there. You, where's your runners? He goes, "I never wear, I never wear runners." So anyway, we go up to Searsons He roaches in his bulls top and and his bare feet, not a bother on him. Says, "Oh, this place looks good. Look at the menu." And uh, yeah, he had a great feed on Tuesday. And I think look at the reason I put it in is because. I've seen teams from South Africa come over here in the past and just shrimp and save. I remember uh, that piece yeah, you, were you know there, what I mean they try and save on their yeah, per diems. Yeah, so basically back to the Kings um I think it was 20, they were getting 20 euro a day yeah. on their day off which is a Wednesday uh, for per diem. So manager will go around on a Monday and say who's having Dinner, lunch and dinner here, and, they don't, and most of them would say, "Look, no, I'm, I'm going out." But then they would pocket the forty euro, yeah. and maybe just have a have protein shakes and eat, you know have a massive breakfast, and that's crazy. You know what I mean? Now, well, and the bulls, and I'm not saying the four teams are in it now, but certainly the idea of having a credit card to bring them out for a nice meal. Um, it makes a difference and I couldn't believe how happy they were like they hardly trained I mean they trained and it was very light um, and Jake in fairness you know he he said he quoted in the press conference he said the nice thing about sport is that when you're given no chance the only people who need to believe you are the ones are, are, uh, you have one are the players and they believe they do have one this is before the match but I certainly got a sense talking to their coaches and players during the week that they were quite confident about him. which didn't have there was no logic in that mm. you know what I mean they'd They've been pretty poor against the, the Sharks in the quarterfinal. They got hammered, obviously, around early by Leinster. Leinster are still a phenomenal team, uh, and that's why I said in like, the Empire because, like, we can't forget that post-Toulouse um, media around the world and pundits around the world were saying these guys have basically invented the way the game should be played. You yes. know, so and that's still they're still very, very good. It's just the problem is effectively Larishel and and the Bulls. Analyzed that and said, "Right, how do we stop that?" So the challenge for Leinster now is to be um, more adaptable, hmm. you know. But the Bulls, the Bulls, in fairness, um, like they know Springboks. Current Springboks, they had four announced yesterday because obviously they had a great performance. But it's an amazing win for them, really, because you know we know Marcel Kutsia, we know Mornay Stein we know business Bismarck Duplassie, who were both on the bench. Kutsia um, um, played, but realistically, they're not a superstar team. But yet they came to the RDS with belief, with a plan. And, and have gone away with, with the win. They're going back on six different flights. They're leaving today. Six different groups trying to get back. They'll get back to Pretoria tomorrow night, and they'll regather Tuesday and fly down to Cape Town on, on Friday. So, but look at it, they couldn't believe the difference of traveling business class. You know, when they normally come up here, it's, a, it's economy. Right. And like they're huge men. Yeah. And we have to factor that in as well, you know? So our teams go down there business class. You know, so it's not always a level playing field but if they can get a level playing field I think they're
0: going to be brilliant for the league. And look, you get a free meal at Searson's next time around. Hopefully, I, yeah, understand, that I understand. That I understand, call, I I understand. Calling that. You did quote Victor Matfield who made the point that this was one of the best Bulls wins you'd ever seen because this Bulls team had no current spring box and you writing your piece how could a team with no current internationals beat a team with 13
2: yeah it's very, it's very worrying for Ireland and, and Leinster um, which is effectively the the, the, the backbone of Ireland um, and we're going to have to find a way to uh, to overcome that power and it's gone back to Saracens and we, we did think this year that Leinster were playing so fast and because Ireland were getting good results playing that way that we can avoid the power mm. but we've just seen um, you know against La Rochelle and against the Bulls that we have another step to take tactically to be able to make sure we can we can avoid it. Um, Is it even possible to avoid power? Not really, but you have to be very very smart. I actually think Leinster. The problem for Leinster was, and maybe it's because Johnny didn't start, but they actually got caught playing narrower than they normally do and that suited the Bulls so um, so as they made a few errors um, they actually started to play around a corner off nine and the fairness they tried their best but they just were getting knocked back and the Bulls had this their, their motto defensively was one in three rooks have to be slow like right. that, 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 that was the thing all week we've got to slow down one in three if we do that we have a chance and they managed to do that um, but I think looking at Leinster and, and the thing that worries me is I um, they've played 60 players this year and for some reason they haven't had trust in their bench and i think that's cost them it cost them in, like i saw joe mccarthy come on in the 60 uh, minute against la rochelle in the final and like ross Maloney and james ryan were out in their feet because like it'd been an incredibly tough game and Rog had, had brought on his his six in, or five impact forwards and left skelton on um and and, and, I, and I, I know joe mccarthy's a player for the future but in europe he's played it's five minutes against Toulouse, four minutes against Leicester, and I think it was four minutes against La Rochelle. Mm. Like, there's no point having them on the bench. Like, unless Leinster have this data that's saying you're better off not using your bench, which I doubt they do, and they do it in other games. Um, and, and in fairness, it's a very small. Um, it's a very small sample pool. Two defeats to say they're wrong, but ninety percent of coaches worldwide are saying twenty-three man game. Yeah, we need to have impact players off the bench. So how can Leinster? How in, if they're playing 60 players and they've got the best academy in Europe there needs to be a, a way of, of, of having that trust and using them so like Dan Sheehan played 80 minutes of the weekend Keane Healy came on for the last 2 minutes 78 minutes um, so the bench at the moment for whatever reason isn't being used and I, I, I think that's putting even more pressure on the internet I know Sexton came on but that's something and that goes back to recruitment so and retention so they decided to keep Devin Toner and Sean Cronin for this year would Have been better to play Devin Toner against the Bulls because of the best defensive line in the competition. Like he wasn't involved in the squad. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought Devin played against Munster, Munster didn't turn up, but I thought Devin looked in great shape for a fella who was on the way out. Sean Cronin, likewise. So, when you make those decisions back in, in September in, in the summer, you need to think, okay, you know, it's not a testimonial year. They need to be able to contribute at the business end of the season to help us play. So, if Joe McCarthy's not ready, yeah, you know. Josh Murphy is just because he's going to Connaught, was he not selected because he's leaving to Connaught? but could Josh Murphy have helped Leinster win a URC which changes the whole picture now the problem the problem is um, teams have, have kind of felt oh we can't beat Leinster and two teams beating you isn't the end of the world but it is creating that sense of belief in others that there's a template to beat them so that's why I thought it was relevant
0: yeah for sure and there is a certain irony in Leinster being celebrated all year for using 60 players but then at the uh, crunch moments ironically not trusting many players beyond the 15 that they've picked Peter O'Reilly is writing about this as well a Leinster left to rue lack of power is his headline he tell, I mean starts with this amazing anecdote I'd miss this he said two minutes after full time Johnny Sexton was standing in the middle of the RDS pitch alone with his thoughts when Canon Moody the Bulls' brilliant 19 year old fullback approached him cautiously would he mind posing for a pick shows the status yeah. of Sexton at this stage doesn't it the Bulls' bagman was suddenly on hand ready to take the snap then another Bull had his arm around Johnny and another Sexton did the decent thing and went through with it from the press box it wasn't Impossible to see his facial expression but he was surely wincing at the incongruity of it all and I suspect he was. On your point about if Sexton had started maybe Leinster would win Peter O'Reilly says maybe Leinster feel they need to prepare for life after Johnny to force Byrne and Ryan into situations where they need to make decisions under pressure And he says, to his credit, Ryan accepted responsibility for three critical line-out losses near the Bulls' try line The pressures of calling the line-out and the pressure of leadership in general can make him look an ordinary player. Is James, James Ryan maybe not a natural leader? we haven't seen um, any evidence so far
2: that he is I think everybody assumed he would be because he broke into the team young he was this player who kind of was Paul O'Connell like in terms of his actions you know he was um, high work rates um, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily someone that yeah. enjoys the the salibre the part of the, of the game or wants that pressure so and in fairness, let's be honest, Leinster haven't fast-tracked him to be that leader either. Um, kind of the the demand from the public was that he, he was automatically going to be the next captain for Ireland. But he can still have a phenomenal career without that hassle. You know what I mean? But I, I don't think... What we've seen so far is probably not, not something that's suited to him yet or he doesn't have enough support around him that that becomes um, easier if you get me there's a lot of focus on him and I think look at as well I mean there's another thing that's really interesting that Joe McCarthy's been and I, I think Joe McCarthy has a bright future I'm not uh, doubting that but he's coming through or he's been um, promoted as our solution as a tight head lock right so everyone's looking for that tight head lock as the best uh, Will Skelton etc obviously he's not as big as those men but actually when he's scrumming for Ireland he scrums on the loose head side James Ryan stays on the tight head side so you're not helping James Ryan out so he has a massive amount of pressure and work rate workload to try and pin down that the right hand side of the scrum mm. um, and look at uh, there's obviously a transitional period etc but how good would James Ryan be playing loose lock alongside a big enforcer and I know Leinster have gone to the transfer market and it's a gamble because of Jason Jenkins injury profile you know unless Leinster can fix that yeah. he's not going to be a, you know a week in week out player for them and they really do need that profile now because I think they can be better tactically, um, and they will be. I mean, the coaching or the coaches are all really smart. Um, they will be better tactically. They'll have learned from this. But you know, you said at the start, you can't run away from a fight for the whole eighty minutes. You need to have that element of power, and Jenkins has that. But the worry is oh, his injury profile and again I would say someone like Leinster do you need to take that gamble you know when you have one spot to fill and it's crucial to you winning European Cups or winning URCs now which we thought was a foregone conclusion well then do you do you have to go for the guy who has the injury profile, or can I know it's a tough market? Everyone wants those players, World Cup cycle,
0: etc. But it's just something worth talking about, I think. Yeah, and mm. it could be so significant. What Leo Cullen said afterwards is, "What you really learn is what wins on the big days." And South Africa winning three World Cup finals is your classic example, isn't it? It's that type of game: squeeze, 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 and the Bulls play a version of that game. And after the game, Jake White was bemoaning his lack of beef, ironically, in the pack. He said he'd love to have La Rochelle in their 1,000 kg pack. I feel like he's just rubbing things <laughs> in by saying that. God, yeah, our pack isn't great at all, uh, bemoaned White. Uh, for instance, and a final point from Peter O'Reilly in the Sunday Times he says that James Ryan will be too small for the Springboks and young Joe McCarthy, who made some heavy carries and kept turning up for work, is a beefy lock by Irish standards, yet he would probably be viewed as a blindside flanker in Pretoria. True.
2: He wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't be
0: big enough. Yeah. No. Uh, this is obvious ramifications for Andy Farrell, given that South Africa are in Ireland's World Cup pool next year, and given that seven of his forwards were in the Leinster pack that lost to the Bulls. Very interesting time. Yeah,
2: and, and, and there's another article about the ramifications now of the tour to New Zealand. Um, the squad's been announced on on Wednesday. Yeah. Connacht obviously had a difficult end to season. They won their last game, but they they certainly weren't flying. Munster had a very tough end to season. Realistically, for Leinster, even though they're in a final and semi final, this is a bad season, end of season to them. Yeah. Um, and Ulster will be very disappointed after last night. So Farrell is going to have to pick them up. And, you know, it's been a long season for everybody. New Zealand will be cold, bleak. New Zealand will be um, sniffing for blood. That If that tour went pear shaped, it could have ramifications for next year. Now, I look at it, I think the players will be re energised by by going back into the Irish camp and and they'll get some confidence from that but I think this tour now it's really important that we're competitive
0: Mm. Very happy to say Tommy Conlon from the Sunday Independent is with us now Hi Tommy
1: Hi Joe, hi Bernard
0: We were were just finishing up there on the rugby pieces and Leinster's loss I don't know, did anything jump out to you on that subject?
1: I just wanted to ask Bernard and yourself Joe were, were Leinster a tad complacent going into that game? To, to my layman's eye uh, the first 20 minutes or so maybe longer plus the fact that they didn't start Johnny Sexton suggested to me uh, to, in my, uh, I emphasise my layman's impression that they felt it would be uh, a stern enough challenge but routine enough at the end of the day too and they'd get some more uh, game time at the c- cutting edge uh, uh, of competition into Ross Byrne and um, they look to me, as I say, in that first quarter in particular, as not really being at the, not really being up for it in the way their opponents were. And I don't know if Bernard got any had any sense of that at all.
2: Look, I think that they would have respected the Bulls. I, I think it would they be it wouldn't be human if they didn't think they were going to win and win reasonably comfortably. That's just based on what we've seen over the Bulls. Um, the the Bulls. The Bulls have been pretty inconsistent, to be honest. Um, and the Bulls brought their A game, so I think Leinster would have been a little bit shocked by that. I think from a selection point of view, there's no doubt Sexton... I have no doubt if Sexton started, they would have won, which, mm. you know, it's easy now to say it. But if, if Leinster get through that game and Ross Byrne learns from it and improves, you know, everyone says Leo Cullen's a genius or Stuart Lancaster's a genius because they've managed to get to a final... And haven't given Ross another opportunity. But the problem now is Ross is, is Ross was twenty seven, twenty eight. You so know what mean? something
0: very worrying about the extent to which Leinster and the national side are still reliant on this thirty seven year old genius. Yeah, it's thirty seven um, year old's the key word there. No, it's incredible. So
2: Bar Joey and uh, and Johnny, we haven't produced an obvious heir. In whatever so long Johnny, Johnny, two thousand and nine, he burst on the scene. So that is a, that is a worry. Um, I don't, I don't. Look, I think that potentially they not complacency, but just actually not able to handle what the Bulls threw at them. Um, uh, like I know the Bulls were absolutely delighted when Johnny wasn't playing. Yeah, you know what I mean. And, and they they also felt that they were under big pressure when he came on. But it, so the, the, my my point of view would be just win the trophy, win the trophy you know, um yeah. show that you're dominant, show you've learned from La Rochelle. Um give all the fella give your fans, give the lads leaving, the lads going to Connor, the lads retiring, a proper send off. Like it was a damn squid there. I mean I felt sorry for, for Cronin and Toner because all the, for the last four years, okay, barring COVID, the McFadden's and stuff, everybody's got the proper send-off. Um, but it's also about winning silverware. Like this team this team are the best funded team in, in, the, in the competition yeah. they're full of talent there's good culture all that stuff but this year they've nothing to show for it
0: so um, well, it's a very disappointing season it really is because yeah. you know there, there when Leo Cullen has that quote in Peter O'Reilly's piece about what you learn about is what tends to win on the big days
2: yeah, but we, we look at the, the, some of those South African World Cup wins. Uh, I, I'm not questioning Leo, but like they won the last one in, in, in Japan, but previous to that, they're going back into the last, you know, over the last 20 years. So we've known what wins test yeah. matches for a long time, you know what I mean? So it's not a surprise, or you shouldn't, we shouldn't be learning about now in 2022. But that's
0: what jumped out to me. I mean, yeah.
2: look at you, it's, it's a difficult after match. You would have been disappointed. He's absolutely 100% <laughs> right. Jake White's. You know, philosophy um, wins wins rugby matches, um, particularly at knockout stages. Is it the best way? Do the fans want to see it week in, week out? No. Probably not. Do we have the tools as a in terms of our DNA and our our, our gene pool to play that way? Probably not. I mean, Joe Schmidt played. A, a, a style of rugby similar to that and it worked for a while. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, we've known we've known that that was a template to, to win um, but what are the, what are lancers going to do? Are they going to copy that or are they going to
0: double down on kind of what they've been doing for the but last... I presume they can't copy it. No, they, they can't. So that's it. why they're no. not doing it. So yeah. this pours a huge amount of coolant on the expectations ahead of the World Cup next year. We can play fantastic rugby, vibrant rugby. We could even maybe go against New Zealand who won't have the same emphasis as yeah. South Africa on bulk. But at a certain point in the World Cup, if we come up against a certain size opposition who want to play a certain pressure rugby, yeah, a, you haven't found a way around that yet. No, realistically it's probably it's probably France and Africa and England. If England
2: are properly clued yeah. in and Eddie Eddie yeah. gets them all back together, they're the three teams who you would fear would have the power to put a squeeze on us. Yeah. New Zealand no. New Zealand um, it's not that they lack power, but they they play quite similar to we do, um, and then you just you're wondering is your skill set good enough to trouble them, you know? Um, but yeah, it is a, it is a worry. But but look, it's not it's not over. Like we have a year to get it right. But uh, and maybe you're better off. I mean, the argument would be are Leinster better off having lost yesterday or on Friday night. No Irish team being in the final for everybody to realise that the landscape has changed, mm. you know. But because let let's be honest, the, the 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 URCs they've won over the last four years has left everybody going
0: away going we're not far away sure you know. we'll take a very short break we're back with Bernard Jackman and Tommy Connell in just one sec now you're welcome back we'll go down to Porky Cueve Larry Tompkins standing by where are we now Larry
3: yeah we're just uh, waiting I think for an equaliser here from uh, Limerick from uh, U-Bork, uh, Cork 10 Pints, Limerick nine pints Now we're just waiting to fly to the ball. Yep, straight over the bar. So sides level here uh, 43 minutes gone, 10 each. Uh, bright start by Cork in the first five minutes. Uh, Sherlock again, God forbid if anything happens to him, he's been just uh, magnificent there today on both frees and play. So he's contributed seven points on the, on, the, on the Cork total. Uh, equally, uh, Hugh Burke has done, has done it. Uh, really brought Limerick back into the game in the last few minutes with a couple of great scores uh, Cork on the attack here now looking dangerous uh, oh Mike Sweeney has he put Cork ahead of and yeah he's, he's great score there from Cork from Ole McSweeney so 11-10 as 11, the stands but look it's nip and tuck there's very little between the sides uh, Cork showing a little bit more intensity in the second half the breeze seems to have died down from the first half so it's uh, probably favouring Cork um, a bit more because uh, Cork were, or Limerick were playing uh, against a very strong breeze in the first half but it seems to be after dying down now so um, advantage to Cork but look this game could go either way uh, Certainly, a goal would be a huge score. But um, Limerick, uh, Limerick on the attack here now. But uh, as I said, it's 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 very close. Limerick's kick out. They haven't lost a kick out all day. Cork not pushing up at all. Alone, easy possession, and, um, and Limerick attacking from deep. And guys like Keane, uh, Keane, Sheehan, Keane Sheehan and, and Ian Corbett, very influential cutting through, and. Uh, Limerick on the attack there but it's just been intercepted but look all to play for here and uh, it wouldn't be surprised if this game ends in the draw and uh, we could be in for a long evening
0: OK Larry thanks for the time being so we're just under half an hour to go there at Porky Creeve Larry Tompkins uh, watching Cork against Limerick Tommy Conlon and Bernard Jackman with us here in the Sunday paper review Tommy before uh, you managed to come on we were just touching on the Irish performance at the Aviva Stadium uh, briefly there so for instance Neil O'Reardon uh, writes forget XG Ireland and now dealing the currency of unexpected goals. And there was something uh, wonderfully unexpected about the quality of goals two and three. We're not used to seeing that kind of quality. And uh, most of the papers are remarking on the fact that you have to go back to 1997 and David Connolly and Mark Kennedy to the last time we had two players, 21 or under, to score in a competitive game. Shane McGrath, the Mail on Sunday, he made changes, they worked. It's a simple game, really. Better again, they worked in a way that was entirely faithful to Stephen Kenny's view on how the game should be played and he said inside of Eva Stadium the vast majority of those present absolutely loved it they love what Kenny's trying to do too and the importance of keeping the supporters committed is vital it sounds basic but international sports teams rely heavily on public support and uh, certainly after the wobble of the past week Tommy I think Stephen Kenny has the general support once again
1: Yes, Joe. The old, the old saying with "One with one leap, our hero is free, and uh, with one bound, our hero is free." And uh, Stephen has escaped the uh, dare I say it, the tightening noose uh, that seemed to be fitted, getting uh, ready for him. That was being fitted for him last week. You had. Uh, Various veteran uh, football journals talking about, uh, um, uh, very, uh, you know, muttering about alarms inside uh, FAI HQ. Uh, various directors and unnamed, of course, and um, you know, and uh, he was he was in a corner. He was back to his back was to the wall after uh, Armenia and Ukraine, and. Uh, um, Uh, So, yes, as we all know, yesterday he badly needed uh, a result and a 1-0 would have done uh, with a a scruffy goal or a set-piece goal or any kind of a goal, and it turned out uh, far, far better than that. And um, uh, he can breathe freely again, and I'm glad because irrespective of... um, uh, Armenia and Ukraine. I, I I did feel, and maybe without being able, fully able to, it's more it's more of a, a sense than um, than an actual than uh, one can offer sort of empirical evidence, but a sense that there is something happening here with this manager. And these players, despite the miserable evidence uh, of of the performances against Armenia and Ukraine, and then, and yesterday uh, his his young lads came to his rescue. But it was it was even mention of the crowd, Joel. It was even uh, conspicuous. I felt before we got the first goal that there was a huge, tremendous atmosphere there. Nearly fifty thousand people there, and uh, there was no sense at all from the crowd and from the buoyancy and uh, how loud and vocal they were. That, that there was no sense that uh, of the aforementioned dark motorings going on in uh, FAI HQ about his position in that, and um, uh, and then uh, we get the first goal. And um, and then young uh, Michael Obafemi turns into Dennis Bergkamp for a moment with that with that delightful little flop shot over the top to Parrot for uh, for the second goal, and then Obafemi's scorcher from outside the box, and uh, and suddenly it's party time, and and, and I'm I'm glad because there I I think even objectively we can say that the the Irish players, despite all their limitations, are as honest as the day is long, hugely committed. And uh, they got a break yesterday. and Personally, I was glad to see it. Tommy,
0: spare thought for the Scots. You picked out Gary Keown in the mail on Sunday, <laughs> and it is lovely I, sometimes to get the Scottish view as it's labelled yeah, here on page seventy-six
1: on again. I actually have written. I had my highlight pen out, and I've written at the top of that piece. Ouch. Exclamation mark! Hmm. Uh, because um, Gary, I'm not familiar with his work generally, but he's—I uh, tell you what—he took out the old, uh, the old uh, hatchet there uh, uh, yesterday evening, and he settled a few scores of the Scottish manager Steve Clark. And it's—it's uh, uh, it's a good old-fashioned rant, I believe, is what we call it in journalism, Joe. And um, well, it, it reads like
0: he wrote this in about four minutes. He just started <laughs> typing and went for it. So he just says a disgrace an absolute disgrace of a performance the kind of cowardly disjointed shambles that lands many managers the sack and most certainly leaves Steve Clark's long term future as national coach open to deep searching questions Clark, of course doesn't always like questions when they don't suit him he was snippy as snippy can be during the week when he was uh, criticised after the Ukraine uh, fallout and then on Wednesday he says after an unspectacular win against an atrocious Armenia only three of his players turned up in the mix zone for interviews with reporters afterwards word came down it was on the manager say so seems he was in a huff over someone or something then too still says Gary Keown at least three guys did turn up to perform three uh, those media duties it was three more than turned up on the pitch in that living nightmare at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin yesterday it's hard to believe the team could be any worse than they were against Ukraine 10 days ago but by Jove they didn't half show that life as a Scotland follower is nothing if not unpredictable he uh, goes on at one point to say by the way my god what a disaster it was <laughs> uh, I mean it's important in sports writing never to have perspective really I suppose if you're going to go after these kind of things My God what a disaster it was yesterday against an Ireland team best described as a who's that of international football That's what we are from the outside. I mean, and he's even willfully ignorant. So, you know, at one point he talks about the second goal and he says, uh, Troy Parrott, comma, of MK Don's fame, allowed to run off Tony Ralston. Uh, These kind of things. And he says, Craig Gordon somehow looked like a guy about to turn 40 all of a sudden. He called Ireland spectacularly uh, limited as well. Uh, So, in a sense, Tommy, he uh, sharpened his pen and he just kept on going.
1: He did, he did, and uh, and and, and what's more, it was a pretty. It, it, it must be a pretty high quality sort of pen Joe, because it didn't get any blunter the <laughs> further it, 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 the further he went. It, 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 it was still cutting very sharply in the in the last piece of, of the article. And um, <clears throat> Ireland are spectacularly limited. Our best two chances, which fell to John McGinn, whose eye for goal has deserted him, uh, when they proved they simply aren't capable uh, of. Executing Kenny's orders to forget the agricultural stuff of, Mick o- of Martin O'Neill and Mick McCarthy's time and pass the ball over defence, but he does make a, he does make a, a, you know the agricultural stuff, and, and he does make the point that the difference was that they wanted it uh, in italics, wanted it Ireland wanted it, it wasn't about passing or philosophy or any of that stuff mm. uh, Ireland team short on confidence and belief until Clark and his men blundered into town, won most of the 50-50s and actually that was, that. you could say the foundation on which the victory was built the very old fashioned virtues of Irish football down through the decades, irrespective of Stephen Kenny's uh, grand designs for the European. Style the continental style. It actually the foundation. I think of that performance yesterday was intensity, passion, energy. um, The extra, obviously, the extra body in in central midfield helped as well. But um, you could uh, uh, before uh, Michael um, Obafemi made that second turn, turn, uh, you know, turned Bergkamp for a moment and made that pass in front. You could say a lot of that wasn't a lot of that performance belonged to the best of previous eras too Uh, and in that way Stephen Kelly's project resembled uh, just yesterday resembled a lot of the best days that we'd seen in Lansdowne Road before.
0: Well I think it's easy when they're so focused on trying to play progressive football to forget about the importance of being aggressive yeah. and high energy and all of those things Correct. which will never go out of fashion. Exactly. So across the papers generally lots of Irish coverage as you can imagine there's the rugby coverage which we've touched on plenty of GAA as well so from yesterday I mean uh, Joe Brawley sums up Mayo's performance Mayo won but don't take it as a compliment and uh, Colm O'Rourke is uh, wondering why Donegal just continually if uh, flatter to deceive Dermot Crowe similarly. Paul Kimmage is interviewing the Ross Tolchin uh, race director Jared Campbell and then I would say uh, beyond that the most comprehensively covered topic is the Live Golf Saudi sponsored breakaway tour which all the papers are devoting uh, quite a lot of coverage to. I would say it's the most coverage golf has had in forever on a Sunday. Matt Cooper in the back page of the Sunday Business Post. You have James Corrigan, you have David Walsh, you have Dermot Elise, you have uh, all sorts of people writing about this. So I don't know how closely you've been following the whole thing Bernard or what you made of the coverage today.
2: Yeah look I, I have re- I read lo- all the articles I, I was probably for me uh, uh, the, the quality of their Performances at the press conference kind of shocked me a little bit and then I saw I saw the screenshot of what they'd been told or been given um, yeah it's amazing that they've had so much time to think about it that they haven't managed the message very well I'm not saying it's possible to manage the message we know um, we know what the issue is but I just thought they looked incredibly uncomfortable um, and it's just been a bit of a shambles and, and the effect the negative effect it's going to have on golf I actually didn't realise that that um, golf was actually struggling, kind of before this as well, in terms of viewership and and, and trying to get money. And obviously, the money's gone up, but um, it's just where it's all going to end. I'm not a, a golfing expert, but it certainly seems as if this is a really dangerous period for for the game in yeah. terms of at the elite level. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know how how bad the, the PR. Is from it long term, or or whatever the repercussions of it are, um, is going to be you know interesting to watch. But uh, yeah,
0: I, I think it's it's an absolute mess. James Corrigan just touches on the money for the players. Charles Schwarzel, who admittedly is a Masters champion, but he's currently world number one hundred and twenty six, and rarely troubles the leaderboards too often these days. So he walked away with $4 million for first place and another $750,000 because his team uh, won the team prize. So $4.75 million which is, as James Corrigan says here, four times the size of the purse he picked up for winning the Masters back in 2011. And I suppose the opportunity that this tour presents for the more middle-ranked players is best exemplified by Sam Horsfield. So Sam Horsfield is a 25-year-old who has done very little in the game, but he did manage to finish third at this event. And so he picked up a million pounds sterling and he didn't actually even finish in the top four. So, you know, that basically is all of his career winnings uh, beaten by double uh, with his million pounds. And uh, we know about the human rights angles and the the press uh, conferences during the week. But for the players, Tommy, and this is the worry for especially the DP World Tour, which is the European Tour, and I think increasingly now the PGA Tour with the likes of Bryson DeChambeau, who, uh, for all the ills that he might present, he is a huge draw, and Patrick Reed as well, both now signing up for the Live Golf uh, events subsequent to this one. Uh, the worry for the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour is that all the players one by one by one all the best players will be picked off and are going to end up playing for this kind of money because it's just too seismic to ignore
1: Yeah and do you know of, of all the and I've been tracking the story all last week uh, like uh, I'm sure you have too Joe and and um, um, but, but you know there's, there's such a deluge of sort of outrage and about it and moral high grounding I suppose by journalists and not unreasonably either Uh, uh, I'm not judging them for that but what stopped me in my tracks uh, was the quote uh, that's in today's in that James Corrigan piece that's in the Telegraph and syndicated to the Sunday Independent the quote from uh, a a survivor's group from the 9-11 atrocities and it kind of didn't stop me in my tracks. It it, 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 may, it makes that, uh, this statement makes that, I feel the, the, uh, that, that, that essential connection between, uh, in the argument, the, almost the heart of the argument. is where uh, a lady by the name of Terry Strada, a widow, uh, a, a woman who was widowed by 9-11 and mother of three wrote, quotes, as a 9-11 widow, I feel compelled to help you understand, This is she's addressing this to the golfers who have joined LIV, I feel contem- compelled to help you understand the level of depravity the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia en- engaged in when it knowingly sent government agents here to establish the support network needed for those hijackers. Given Saudi Arabia's role in the deaths of our loved ones and those injured on 9-11, your fellow Americans, we are angered that you're so willing to help the Saudis cover up this history in their request for respectability. And... uh, I
0: don't don't think that would be unsignificant, by the way. So the US Open is on next week at Brookline in Boston, and they're a fairly raucous crowd. Mm. And whilst the human rights abuses and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi are reprehensible and people are aware of them, I think for an American crowd and a patriotic American crowd, if the... Saudi project is crystallised through the prism of this 9-11 families, united group, and and if they start to speak more prominently even next week, when we're back in American soil and Phil Mickelson will be interviewed by American journalists for the first time, for instance, if if the Saudi regime becomes heavily associated with 9-11, that could take on a slightly different slant in front of an American crowd, which will be interesting. But otherwise, I think, to be honest... Greg Norman and the Saudi PIF will be high-fiving behind the scenes because this from three months ago when Mickelson's comments were leaked about the Saudis being scary, mother effers and how he's just doing this to get money and he knows that they're human rights abusers, but you know, money is money. It looked dead in the water then to be here in June. Mm. I would say they can't believe how well it's gone
2: yeah and uh, like I know obviously there's a huge amount of money but just to give it in context something I read during the week was um so the money going to Newcastle is 400 million the deal they did with Formula 1 was 600 million but they're willing to throw 2 billion at this golf project like it's just yeah. ban- bananas and obviously that's you know the, the golfers um, uh, that's what's get them to, to toe the line with it, but um, yeah, it's 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 absolutely phenomenal. But and you said it looks like it's like is the is the is the outburst or, or outcry about it going <clears> to <throat> grow, um, or is it going to die off? It's going to die off.
0: You know I mean? die off. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the likes of Rob Harris and Dan Rowan, who were asking those questions in London this week, they're not going to be at it next year no. because it's been done. Yeah. It'll totally die off. It'll be normalised. That's the whole point. And actually, I mean, it's interesting. So Dave Walsh is talking about it and he makes the not unreasonable point. You know, Rory McIlroy came out during the week and in fairness, McIlroy has been fairly um, strong on this from the beginning and said he never liked where the money had come from. And he had a quote this week, which was much celebrated, where he said that generally, if you do anything just for money, it doesn't work out that well. And it's interesting. He was asked by Brian Kyo, what were you talking about there? And it turns out he was talking about, oh, if you play at a tournament and you get an appearance fee, you can sort of turn up and feel like, oh, well I've already got the money so it's hard to play well. But I've kind of got used to that now. And David Walsh points out, you know, McEroy teed up at the Canadian Open last year. He was paid three and a half million dollars just to turn up. So he certainly has reconciled himself to that particular predicament, you know, and like so for McElroy he gets his three point five million dollars and he won the tournament as well. That's five million dollars for him. But if you have like the bloke duplice's from South Africa who finished second uh, this week and won $2 million when his entire career before that was $400,000. Like it is easy when you're the creme de la creme of the PGA Tour to kind of say I don't like where the money's coming from but I can see how everybody has their price. Like Lee Westwood and David Walsh points it out said to the journalist just like you just like you, if there's a pay increase at my age, then I'd be stupid not to take it, or certainly not to have a good look at it. And <clears throat> yeah, and I
2: think I think that's the uh, that's the human nature, the human nature as well. But like that example there of the guy whose career earnings was four hundred thousand, and then he wins two million. million. Like I, I saw the boxing promoter um, this week talking about for the boxers, and they've got short lifespan. It's a dangerous sport, yeah. and I, I was kind of more, I was less outraged by them taking that money because. You know, maybe I did not know. like you know, they've come from tough backgrounds, or they have a, a limited chance. Whereas for the golfers, I'm like, God, oh, they're so wealthy anyway. But then, realistically, four hundred thousand over your career isn't uh, career earnings isn't massive. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's just um, as, uh, as you said. I think they've they've probably got to the peak of the storm and come
0: out the other side. And maybe in two years' time, no one will be talking about it. Well, I think all the majors the Masters in particular I mean uh, that could be uh, a pinch point but increasingly as the names like DeChambeau and, and former champions like Mickelson and Dustin Johnson now pitch up on the Live Golf Tour suddenly the four majors if they're being cynical and let's be honest everyone is they'll be saying suddenly our four events are the only four events in the whole year where the best players play each other. Our events just got bigger, there's more wattage around them, there's more interest in them. Yeah. So I, I I think it's inconceivable that the Masters would not invite these big name players on Live Golf. And you know, if that happens, and if like Gray McDowell has already been like most bloodied first over the wall with his interviews this week, I think the second wave who go over to live golf in the next twelve months will be considerable. And then, you know, Rory's line is that he wants to play against the best players. Yeah. He might be there in two years on the PGHR press conference and realising all the best players are playing on live golf, Tommy.
1: Um, just on that point on the Masters, uh, yeah. Joe um, and Bernard, uh, Rick Broadbent in the Sunday so Times throws an interesting potential spanner in the works here. He says the biggest, Rick Broadbent says the biggest problem for live golf is the majors if the masters which is supportive of the pga tour decides to bar live golf players that could be the game changer
0: i think that's live becoming Go- i think that's becoming a bigger if by the minute do you there's too many big names over on the live golf now the masters ultimately is supportive of the pga tour but the masters do not want to have a competition without the best players because what is right. it then right you know, okay. if you if you if you were uh, the chairman at Augusta, Tommy, a role I think you could do very well. I'm sure. Uh, if, Indeed. If if several more big names go akin to like Phil Mickelson, beloved, you've got Dustin Johnson there, champion just two years ago. Bryson DeChambeau now going. Let's throw in two or three more of the world's top ten, and you're hosting the Masters, and the other three yeah. majors are letting everybody in. Are you going to suddenly allow the Masters become the fourth of best of the four majors?
1: Well, Joel, um, is not the Masters. Um, Augusta National Golf Club are they not famously uh, a sovereign and independent in all matters pertaining to their beloved tournament and indeed golf course mm-hmm. and uh, they have uh, historically done whatever they wanted to do and uh, barred whoever they wanted to bar mm-hmm. and uh, called the shots in every conceivable way yeah. and um, uh, even allowing for the, the point you make uh, about about losing some of the t- they want the best players in the world there um, might they be idiosyncratic enough and arrogant enough and sort of um, kind of um, aristocratic enough about it all to say no we don't need we don't need you guys who are on that uh, rather vulgar um, vulgar rebel tour they are to stick with the, our establishment players no, they
0: are They are. it wouldn't be surprising and the PGA Tour is currently down on two knees praying that they are because that's about their best shot of fending off live golf currently so they certainly are and that's going to be the really interesting question Mm -hmm. we're going Mm -hmm. to take a very short break we're back with Tommy Conlon and Bernard Jackman in just one moment now you're welcome back we're just going to check in at Porky Cueve Larry Tompkins is watching the closing stages of Cork uh, against Limerick Cork seem to have wrestled control of the tie Larry Well, we'll try and get Larry again on the line there. Apologies for that. So they have wrestle control of the tie, I can tell you. So the latest, with just a couple of moments to go, is that Cork now lead 215 to Limerick's 113. So 215 to Limerick's 113. And you would think that's Cork through to the quarterfinals of the All Ireland series. We're here going through the papers with Tommy Conlon and Bernard Jackman. There's a text in just on the live golf uh, point, Tommy does everyone not have their price, journalists included? I suspect they do, Tommy, broadcasters included, journalists included. It's very easy to sit there and ask the questions, but was anyone to sit down and uh, contemplate turning down life-changing money? I suspect they would find their price point very easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think everyone should hold their hands up and admit that point, but I'm not persuaded by this argument of hypocrisy, you, you know, that can be made against someone like Rory McIlroy or indeed some of the uh, journals uh, bring, uh, protesting about the matter or indeed, you know, point to the government's doing deals with the Saudi Arabian arms dealers and all like that. Um, if if, uh, if that a- a- allegation or accusation, it, it, it can be leveled at almost everyone almost all the time. Mm. And you'd never, you'd never be able to mount any sort of a moral argument, really, at all, if if one didn't accept that there may be some inbuilt hypocrisy in Rory McIlroy's stance, for example, in this case. And uh, but nevertheless, I think it's very admirable his stance, and um, uh, you know, and I don't think the argument of hypocrisy or double standards uh, negates his argument. Uh, or, and indeed, a lot of the other arguments about this particular issue. And um, I don't think people should be dissuaded uh, from making a case against uh, for, against this this LIV project uh, on simply on the grounds of double standards alone. Um, I, I do feel that you know you're still entitled to do the right thing the next time, even if you haven't necessarily always done the right thing in the past. And um, I just do the right thing and say the right thing, and uh, accepting accepting all those caveats and uh, and valid arguments about about hypocrisy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I, I, I think uh, McIlroy has done well and spoken well, and I applaud him for it.
0: Mm. By the way, Dave Walter was making the point that he thought that the shotgun start destroys the integrity of the golf course. They do a shotgun start at this Live Golf event, and he pointed out it'd be bizarre to start an Amen corner at Augusta certainly for the majors fair enough but actually from a TV experience I think mainstream golf or legacy golf turn- tours whatever we want to call the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour they could learn a lot about the TV production here because it was better that shotgun start where suddenly all the players are on the course at the same time for four and a half hours and it means there's far more golf to watch whereas Standard PGA Tour event of a Thursday or Friday, you tune in, and it's uh, the field stretched across ten hours, and the leaderboard is full of guys who've posted their score in the morning, and there's lots of cuts to scenery and leaderboards and filler, and it's a much slower, thinner experience. So that might be uh, something which is about to change on the PGA Tour and DB World Tour on the the back of the Live Golf experiment
1: sorry Joe on a technical matter did it require them to have many many more cameras on the course it
0: probably did yeah although no I wouldn't think so because every every is going to have a set number of uh, set cameras anyway and there might be just a mm. couple of handhelds off the featured groups. No, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Okay. You, you, don't, you don't need to be fair, the cameraman on the fairway right next to every player. You just need him next to Phil Mickelson and the marquee players. And then there's there's stationary cameras at every tee box and at every uh, landing point in a fairway and a green anyway. So no, I just think it was... But it, right. it, it's a, it was a far better viewing experience, like I said, than watching the field stretched out over 10 hours. So um, Right. Could, and look, golf's going to be in for a, an interesting... Uh, decade. Ronan says, as a golf fan, I won't watch any of Live and I also avoid Newcastle uh, United matches. It's a very admirable stance. The Saudis will not be worried, unfortunately, but it's a very admirable stance, Ronan. Uh, somebody also wondering about uh, the URC tournament and we didn't really mention Bernard Leinster being beaten and that's the main story over here, but good for the tournament and this might, an all South African final might spark a real interest and get this uh, tournament under their skin early doors? Yeah, I think it's,
2: it's massive. They were very um, disenfranchised with uh, with Super Rugby. You know, it, it lost its um, uh, the imagination of the South African rugby public. South Africa, obviously, World Cup winners, British and Irish Lions series winners, and now they have two teams in the URC final. And I think an all-South African final is, is really going to um, I suppose grasp the, the interest of the South African rugby public there'll be there's restrictions <laughs> on the stadium on Saturday so there's 30,000 in the stadium the atmosphere was electric for the Stormers Ulster um, they're trying to get the restrictions open and they could have a full house So these COVID it, restrictions yeah COVID restrictions oh, still yeah, oh. yeah. Um, but they're going to push to try and get them um, lifted for this weekend and have a full house in there and I, I think it'd be it'd be good for the tournament and look at We've been the ones setting the, the pace um, for a long time in this competition and complaining a little bit about the Scots and the Welsh and Italians not giving us what we need. Yeah. Well, we now have that. So how are we going to adapt? How are the Scots? And I think it's exactly what the competition needed.
0: Yeah, well, it might be harsh on Leinster to say it, but the four URC wins are fairly hollow because yeah. the sense is, well, they should be winning. Exactly. And you don't get much joy from them. No. Uh, Tommy, your piece, pages eighteen and nineteen of the Sunday Independent, uh, really, yeah. it's brilliant. With uh, Gabriel Dawson, who won a European medal in boxing last uh, week in Armenia, and his yeah. mother Meserk Modi, so yeah. overcoming all the odds is the headline. And, and certainly, Gabriel Dawson's had an extraordinary life, but his mother has had an extraordinary life for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I dare dare I say, uh, Gabriel's. M- wonderful mother, Mesric, uh is the hero of the story, really. And uh, Gabriel had a, I don't claim to speak for him at all, but a, a, I would have thought a stable, uh, safe, happy, uh, contented upbringing in Galway, where he was only two years of age when his mother arrived in Ireland, uh, seeking asylum from um, terrible ethnic wars in Ethiopia. She's a member of the Oroma tribe that has uh, uh, 35, 38 million people and has a, uh, occupies a huge swathe of the country of Ethiopia. And they've been uh, wanting independence for decades and decades, on and off for 100 years. And But there has been savage atrocities and uh, r- r- long-running wars and the government forces battling with... Um, uh, with the aroma liberation army who have also perpetrated horrendous atrocities as well apparently uh amnesty international i was reading up on it last week but uh, you know in, in the midst of all of that uh, political and uh, ethnic and um military military um sort of aggression does does the people there's always the people and uh, uh and uh, Mesrek Moti uh, became herself uh, a a refugee, I guess, from the violence in her native Oromia and uh, ended up 6,000, what made an epic journey across Africa from Eastern Africa to uh, the Ivory Coast on on the West Coast, on the Atlantic side of Africa. Um, Met and fell in love with a young man from Liberia. They had a baby boy uh, born in the refugee camp in ivory coast uh, gabriel and uh, he was two years old when uh, his mother boarded uh, illegally uh, a ship bound for europe not really knowing where it would end up and they ended up arriving and walking into dublin city off the ship and that began her life in ireland she got asylum status the following year they moved to galway and um and uh she and uh gabriel and she had uh four other more children and they've lived in galway uh for the last 20 years and um, the oldest son gabriel is now uh, ireland's uh, middleweight european amateur uh, gold medal winner uh, uh, hoping to go to the paris olympics and uh, his younger brother aaron is on the books at galway united fc and his younger sister eve is a ireland youth international and so the, the story of uh, of Gabriel's mother, her, her, her epic journey and I suppose the heroism of mothers all over the world trying to keep their, protect their families, that was the story really here, Joe and Bernard, and one I, I felt um, a little bit privileged to talk about and tell today.
0: Yeah, no, it was absolutely fantastic. And the extraordinary scene is in some respects when uh, Mursic, who's Gabrielle's mother has managed to pay the money to be uh, taken away from where she's trying to flee in the ship. And they're in the bottom of the ship for a long, long time. And she yeah. talks about how every two, three days, someone would bring them some food, but sometimes nothing. And just yeah. the randomness of life is they know they've landed somewhere, but they didn't know yeah. where they didn't. There was no intended destination. It was quick, get onto a boat and you can be on the boat and pay your few quid and we'll we'll get you away from where you're trying to flee but that's all you know and just this extraordinary scene where she emerges from the boat with her newborn son a baby Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know where she is and this is in 2002 Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's well you're in Dublin and she sees an African man and asks him well, I guess where am I and what do, what should I do here and well he tells her there's an African market in the city centre all the black people they meet there so she goes to the market and then there's an internet shop and someone gives her the address for where she can present herself and declare her as an asylum seeker and she's put in a reception centre in Dublin and, and on it goes from there but just the randomness of life you know we all spend so much time trying to craft our futures and here's somebody yeah. with a newborn baby get in a boat and well you'll emerge somewhere in a few months time and best of luck
1: yeah yeah and um, yeah it's it's uh, I, I guess maybe it's um, symbolic of a million other stories like that yeah and yeah um, it was a happy uh, kind of ending to it too uh, insofar as uh, she tells the story of uh, she's in the uh, uh, Asylum Seekers uh, reception centre in Kildare and uh, she and her husband and or her partner and uh, are invited to a children's birthday party in Galway and they get the train to Galway and she steps off the train in Galway Comes out of the train station. There's Air Square in front of her uh, with the green grass. The lovely and Air Square is, is always lovely. And and she said she saw the green grass and people who looked happy and uh, the sun was shining and and she just had this epiphany. Galway will be my home.
0: I thought that and was a, uh, a, a there was a degree of false advertising on Air Square's part that it was <laughs> sunny. I thought, <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Well, uh, Gabriel did joke that was the only day it wasn't raining when when the mother arrived in uh, <laughs> in, uh, in in Galway, and uh, and funny enough, the, the very next day they're still in Galway. They stayed overnight after the children's party, and the next day then she gets a phone call from her solicitor saying that she has been uh, by the Department of Justice has granted her uh, as, uh, asylum status, official asylum status. So she's. She you can stay in ireland and build a life there and they don't go back to dublin or kildare or to say we're going to stay in galway this is where we're going to build a life and the uh, five dawson's uh, gable being the oldest they've all grown up in galway and uh, gone into the education system and the sporting infrastructure and making their contribution to i guess uh, irish life and um, uh, it's, it's been very tough for you wouldn't want to dress it up as a Hollywood singer 20 years in Ireland knowing no one not knowing how the system works no networks of friends family not speaking the language um, struggling to survive financially all of that it's yeah. been a tough arduous struggle but a, a wonderful woman and Gabriel comes across as a great guy and exceptionally talented sportsman
0: Yeah. No, you you do make that point very well in the piece. Mazurka has been bringing them up as a single mother for the last 11 years. She found work as a kitchen porter, then in a cafe, now in a community centre. It's been a long, hard struggle to make her way in a society that she didn't know without a network of family and friends. And Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that has been extraordinarily tough. The other Mm -hmm. thing, Bernard, which jumps out is that for Gabriel, Very difficult financially as he made his way through college, did okay in the leaving cert and went to Galway Technical Institute, then at Lone IT where he's going to complete his final exams in August. But financially to train in Abbottstown Tuesday to Friday quite often, he hasn't had much financial security. But his European title now means he should be in line for the top tier funding of 40,000 euro. And he said that was a big discussion over in Armenia at the event the other week. Every time he said we were fighting, we were thinking two more fights, one more fight, we'll get the payday.
2: Yeah, it's a, yeah, and hopefully now he's in line for um, the top tier funding of forty thousand, which will effectively change his life. Okay. It sounds like he, he needs to maybe go up with, um, a weight to fit into a category for the Paris Olympics, but that European title is massive. And look at he's if he's anything like his mother, he'll he'll um, he'll fight all the way yeah. to the to the top. It's a, it's an incredible story. Um, and yeah, I'd love to see him. Look, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about him apart from this, but he'd love to see him get that funding to allow him, you know, really focus on um, being able to combine his studies and his and his training yeah. to give himself the best possible chance. And I suppose, look, when you when you hear a story like this and then you know you, you you see the grants that are available for elite performers um you, you feel it's money well spent really to give yeah. them that chance to 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 live their dream and, and the four kids all seem to have integrated incredibly well in Galway and and you know the single mom working two jobs etc so yeah i'm certainly going to be keeping an eye out from from now yeah. um and, and and it's a story well told and um yeah i i, I hadn't I had no idea you forget how tough some people's start uh, to get here is and and obviously the journey then.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Something uh, totally different, page six and seven of the Sunday Times. I just thought that this was a very interesting piece. I'll give it a brief mention. John McManus wrote the story as we head to the World Cup in Qatar. Just what the Qatar government have done in a bid to try and get their team up to scratch. So, uh, Qatar won the uh, their Champions of Asia. So the, the question posed is, how has Qatar, with 7,500 registered footballers, managed to craft a football team that cowed a continent of 4.6 billion? How has this miracle been achieved? And what they have done in Qatar is so interesting. Uh, initially, Qatar tried to do it the way a lot of countries try and do it, which is just buy people in. So, for instance, in 1999, the Qatari weightlifting team were disqualified from the Arab Games because of four Bulgarian-born weightlifters in their squad. And in 2003, the Kenyan runner as uh, Stephen Chirano became a Qatari national, changed his name to Saif Saeed Sahin, uh, in re- reportedly in exchange for a large lump of money and ran the fastest ever steeplechase time in 2004. That record still sa- stands. So in football, they tried to do the same thing. In the space of one week in 04, Qatar tried to naturalise three Brazilian footballers and apparently that move so infuriated FIFA back in 04 that it prompted football's governing body to tighten eligibility requirements for all international footballers. So what do Qatar do? Well, they identify any young talent in the country and it's a small country so there isn't a huge amount but the any young talent is brought to the Aspire Dome in Doha and the young charges there it's an air-conditioned dome they train they eat they sleep football it's a tailor-made educational uh, schedule as well and it's under the watchful eye of some of the world's best coaches so there's a, an academy in effect for those talented young players in the country but what's more they have uh, devised a scheme called football dreams And over $100 million spent. And this involves scouts sent out to Africa, South America and Asia. So between 2007 and 2014, seven years, 3.5 million boys from 17 countries were screened by uh, this Qatari Academy. And every year of the 3.5 million in that seven years, every year the best 50 are brought for a week-long trial in Doha. And of those 50, the best three are cherry-picked and they're brought through to join the other Qataris at this academy. In total maybe only 18 to 20 are offered scholarships. So you take it as late as December 2017 there was no sign of this bearing fruition. Uh, Qatar were 102nd in the world but slowly but surely uh, this has started to pay off. In 2014 the under 19 side became Asian champions and as things have gone on a lot of these players have graduated to Uh, the first team and just to add another layer of complication to it because it is very interesting how the whole thing operates in Qatar of those um, 144 Qataris who went to Aspire that's the name of the academy uh, uh, most of them not Qatari citizens so of the 23 players for instance that won the Asian Cup that squad that won the Asian Cup 17 of them were long term residents of Qatar but they were never given citizenship and that includes their top goal scorer, for instance, who was born in Sudan. Because, in a sense, here, uh, the Qatari government have strict laws they, which forbid citizenship by birth or naturalization, except by decree of the emir. So, only a maximum of 50 foreigners can be naturalized each year. Uh, strict citizenship laws are good for retaining benefits when you're a country of few nationals and lots of migrants. So you retain the benefits when you have a country of few nationals and lots of migrants. So in effect, if you give these Qatari players a mission passport is what it's called, it allows them to travel competitions on behalf of Qatar. But domestically, it confers few benefits. So you can travel and you can represent us and we give you this thing called a mission passport. But domestically, we don't have to give you the benefits of other uh, citizens. And that is how Qatar have turned themselves into a very competitive football team without having to give citizenship to the players who represent them. I mean, there's something so ugly about the whole thing.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. It was obviously the motivation was to have a team in the 2022 World Cup that didn't disgrace the, the country that's what yeah. that's what started and they obviously put the plan together since mm-hmm. 2005 and have spent an incredible amount of money searched the world and, and targeted let's be honest countries where maybe we where economic um, oh, yeah. they're, they're struggling but yeah they're not so the, the, this is the worry um, is that the, the players who play for them at the World Cup who have kind of committed to them will have nothing afterwards you know they'll be able to their visa could be uh, rescinded they've got no rights to stay there long term which is uh, it's it's not um, it's not pleasant and in fairness to John McManus he has, he has two pieces Actually, I see he has, he's written a book on this but the other piece then is, is around how they try to control the PR message and how most of the top PR companies in the world have agencies in Qatar um and how they kind of taught look at you can just buy an interview with the Wall Street Journal or you can totally kind of massage the mess message, but they found that they obviously have been able to do that and um how difficult it is to get them to understand um you know the importance of of positive PR or they wanna do it like sometimes and then other times they don't want to do it. So yeah, in general, um I think the two pieces of
0: McManus are, are quite strong. Yeah. Uh, He finishes his piece by saying the concept of the mission passport shows that Qatar wants to have its cake and eat it. Just so grubby, Tommy, isn't it? And and cynical and and just exemplifies where modern sport is in so many ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, it seems even more extreme than what uh, the old Eastern Bloc countries did under the communist regimes. Uh, Notoriously, East Germany and the USSR, Romania, where almost it was a form of state kidnapping of young, young talent, the best young talent, and being, uh, being farmed and monitored and measured and analysed from childhood to see, to see how they could bring honour to the glorious empire by becoming gymnasts or athletes or whatever, and. Um, but in this in this case, it's, it, it seems even worse in, in 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 the sort of this global search for talent and bringing them to this aspire dome, and and uh, you wonder it almost sounds like a, a some sort of form of open air uh, captivity center for them, and and where they are processed and trained and monitored and all for the glory of the uh, uh, of the country and the ruling family and. Uh, it's Orwellian uh, in a way and uh, and then the fact that they treat them with such brazen uh, uh, cynicism as to say we need you to do this particular job for us but we're not going to give you a, uh, uh, we're not going to re- reward you with citizenship or really many human rights civil rights or anything like that I mean um, there seems to be no, no concept of fairness or uh, people's rights and, and um, it's horrible, Joe. It's a it's a fa- fascinating piece of work by John McManus, and um, but I, I find it sinister, very sinister. Mm. That whole project.
0: No, it sure is, uh, gents. We are out of time. Uh, thank <coughs> you so much for your time today, Tommy Conlon of the Sunday Independent. Thanks, Tommy. Pleasure, Joe. And Bernard Jackman, thank you so much for popping in the studio. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Uh, Cork have beaten Limerick. Details on that in just a moment.